0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wall. Exploring Strange New Worlds would not be possible without the ships of the imagination that make it happen. Enterprise, Defiant, Voyager, Discovery, Cerritos, Protostar. Not only are these vessels supposed to represent the evolution of our technology hundreds of years in the future, They are also beautiful, graceful characters in and of themselves. And they wouldn't be what they are or mean what they do to us if it weren't for their amazing designers. So today, we have a very special treat. Our very first Star Trek ship artist beams aboard Strange New Worlds. Thomas Maroney is the Associate Art Director for Star Trek Online, a video game that just celebrated its 12-year anniversary. I met Thomas in person at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention in 2016. We traded swag, I gave him some Exoplanet goodies from JPL, and he gave me some Star Trek Online stuff in return. Ever since then, I've been an incredible fan of his work. If you're not familiar with his portfolio, there's a link to his art station in the show notes, and I guarantee if you're a fan of Star Trek ships, you won't be disappointed. So I reached out to Star Trek Online to snag an interview with Thomas earlier this year. But despite all of my poking and prodding, they kindly ignored me until after the first episode of Star Trek Picard's second season premiered. An episode in which four Star Trek online ship designs were seen on screen. (laughs) Then they were like, okay, now you can speak to Thomas. (laughs) I don't know if they were just busy or what, but I like to think of it as STO doing me a favor and giving me just one more thing to talk to Thomas about. So strap in and make sure your external inertial dampeners are disengaged. Because this is going to be one fun ride where we'll explore the the behind-the-scenes of starship design, along with some never-before-revealed Star Trek history. And of course, no small amount of technobabble. Engage! So listeners, you can't see this right now, but I am just geeking out that I have <laughs> the famed Star Trek online ship artist, Thomas Moroni here with me to talk about starship design and art and all sorts of great stuff on Strange New Worlds. This is the first time we've ever had a ship designer on the podcast. So
1: nice. Thomas, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm really excited to... Uh... Shoot the ship. As I say, it's, uh, (laughs) I, uh, I will never get tired of that joke. I'm sure anybody who sees me on more than one podcast will get tired of it, but you know, (laughs)
0: no it's 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 just an honor and a pleasure to have you here and we will be shooting a lot of ship today <laughs> so let me just begin by telling you a little bit about myself as a star trek online player um mm-hmm. and the audience probably doesn't know how long i've been playing star trek online because i've never talked about it before on strange new worlds but um like you thomas i'm a lifelong star trek fan who grew up not just on the Star Trek TV shows, but also on Star Trek video games. So I played a lot of Starfleet Command and Armada Mm -hmm. and Elite Force when I was young. Yeah. Yeah. And when Star Trek Online came out, I was immediately just all in. I was one of the beta testers in 2009, Mm -hmm. just like you were, and I've played it ever since the game launched in 2010. Uh, So I feel like the first thing that I have to do here is just say thank you for all that you've put (laughs) into this game. I'm, I'm really a huge fan
1: of your work. No, thank you. Um, no, it's I mean, I I have always looked at it as an incredible opportunity to build a build a version of the Star Trek universe that people can walk around and fly around in, right? So I've done done my best to take advantage of that opportunity and make sure that it's you know the best that it can be. So, Thomas, you went from
0: just another Star Trek fan and another Star Trek online player to joining Cryptic Studios and becoming a Star Trek Online UI artist first and then a Star Trek Online ship designer and now you've recently been promoted to associate art director of STO so congrats on that.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Um,
0: I know you have a great science-centric story for how you made that leap from a player to part of the development team where you kind of took it upon yourself as a fan to try to make the science-themed missions in Star Trek Online a little bit more engaging Mm -hmm. uh, which of course I I I really appreciated uh, as a science officer captain myself, you know, (laughs) I love those science missions. So could you share that story with us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, like you said, I was a, uh, you know, I, I got really excited when Star Trek online was announced and I really wanted to, you know, I couldn't wait to kind of live in the Star Trek universe, which was the implication of a massively multiplayer game set in any universe is that you're, You know, you can go to all the places you want to go to in Star Trek Online, you can go to DS9, you can go to Bajor, you can go to Earth Space Dock, you know, the Starfleet Academy, right, all these famous Star Trek locations exist in the game, you can go visit them, you can be immersed in the Star Trek universe. So I was super excited about that possibility. So I jumped as soon as I could, and I signed up for the open beta. Or closed beta, actually. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you, you know, if you bought the lifetime subscription before the game even launched, before you played a minute of it, uh-huh. uh, you could get access to the closed beta. And so I did that because I needed to be in you know as soon as i possibly could and so when when we finally got to the chance to play star trek online there are uh, one of the things in the early game is there are these missions where you can run around and you can like scan five things right there were this uh, these exploration clusters and you you kind of did a bunch of different little missions and you didn't know what you were going to get like oh this would be shoot five things and this one would be scan five things and then every now and then there'd be a little mix in that formula And so I liked that because I like the idea that, you know, being a Starfleet officer is about being a scientist as much as it's about defending the Federation. It's also about exploring strange new worlds, right? And Mm -hmm. and so the game having that in it was good. But um, when you went up to scan something, it was literally you just pressed a button and then the progress bar filled up and then you were done scanning. So I thought it would be cool if they added a bit more interactivity to that part of the game, um, and so there were some other. You know, you mentioned Elite Force. I think before um, and in Elite Force Two, there's a, a thing where you use a tricorder, and you basically it's a it's a really simple game where you have a, a wave form like a uh, you know a, a sine wave, and you you match, um, and you have a sine wave you control, and then you have the target sine wave or whatever, and you just sort of match the amplitude and frequency of the the sine wave you match them together and mm-hmm. then that's how you complete the scan. Right. So I was like, well, that's pretty easy. That's pretty simple to implement. So I created a mock-up of that. And then I kind of <laughs> went wild with it and then thought, well, if you did that, like maybe we could do a bunch of other mini game types. So I made a mock-up of like pipe dream. Right. Cause you know, they're constantly rerouting the EPS conduits. I even did a, <laughs> yeah. uh, a bejeweled style game that was meant to like, be uh, alien translation. So, like, Mm. uh, the different gem colors were different alien glyphs. And so if you put them together, that was sort of deciphering meaning. And so that was like, that's how you, you know, unlock the alien language in the universal translator by playing this little bejeweled minigame. And then there was an (laughs) asteroid style game that was essentially um, inspired by, what is that movie? Um, The one where they, like, shrank down into a little tiny submarine impossible voyage or something mm-hmm. um and so the the asteroids mini game was actually inside a, a bloodstream and so you're you're shooting borg nanites <laughs> so you're trying <laughs> to prevent assimilation um so anyway so i did all these mock-ups with the idea of making the, the science part of star trek online more interactive and more part of the actual gameplay um as opposed to just running up and pressing a single button and um yeah long story long the developers saw those mock-ups and they they liked what they saw and they ended up buying that art and incorporating some of them into the game
0: that's so cool i can't tell you how many hours i've spent you know trying to match sine waves <laughs> all <laughs> thanks to you in star trek online um and you know I'm, I'm glad that you made the game you know somewhat scientific but also not too scientific like i'm glad there are no equations for sine waves that <laughs> i need to do <laughs> yeah. while i'm scanning a little thing um yeah, yeah it's, it's really great i love those little mini mini games
1: yeah, I mean, math was never my actual <laughs> specialty, <laughs> so I, I definitely was an art major and, and with all the baggage that implies as far as math is concerned, so, yeah. so it was definitely like an abstraction and a visualization, not anything too super crunchy, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, it was still fun. So it Absolutely. gave you the feeling of doing it. I do recommend not to go off the trail too too far here, but another game that did this really well was the recent Spider-Man games for PlayStation 4. Ah, okay. Uh, um, because they there are some really cool mini games when you're Peter Parker and you're working in the lab, right? Because that's part of Peter Parker's character is he's a scientist. And so they did some really cool mini games. And there's even like spectrum analysis where you like match... I don't know what they call it, but, you know, the, mm-hmm. when you, you look at the, help me out here, the, I, you're looking I at a spectrum you, of something. I but, know what you mean when you yeah. say
0: spectral analysis. Yeah, right. so you're looking at, like, the absorption yes. Uh, features. Yes, yeah, yeah, the yeah. absorption yeah. lines, the right? Mm-hmm. Absorption yeah. lines,
1: yeah. And, and so they had a match game there where you're, like, trying to, like, figure out, okay, what is this actual compound and use mm-hmm. different plates of absorption lines to match it up. I no, know, this is really cool. Hey, so that's really cool. That's another I mean, game that does that That's well.
0: how we go about trying to figure out what different planetary materials are made of you know right. you take a spectrometer to a different world and you zap something and then you match up the absorption lines and uh yeah. and you figure out what chemicals are in there that's awesome yeah it sounds like i need to steal my brother's ps4
1: and <laughs> it's a fun game <laughs> uh, other i mean like swinging around and being spider-man is cool but also it's i was impressed they made being peter parker cool too you know
0: mm, yeah yeah well, thanks to you, you made all Star Trek cool <laughs> <laughs> by uh, by implementing these cool mini games in Star Trek Online. Um, so let's jump to the next leap in your career between being a UI artist to a ship designer. I watched this mini documentary that Star Trek Online put out uh, about you called "My Life at Warp Speed," I believe, mm-hmm. uh, and in there you mentioned that to become a ship designer for STO you had to take a ship art test. I don't mm. even know what that means. So what goes <laughs> into a ship art test? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's actually pretty, pretty common in the games industry. Most disciplines really, and maybe all disciplines, um, have some sort of skills test when you're going through the application process of, um, you do all the interviews and then you do a skills test. And depending on what discipline you're in, that skills test will be essentially like, okay, Make a ship for us. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you have two weeks or whatever, build a 3D model of a starship, texture it, and then send that in. And then people will use that to evaluate if they think that you actually have the skills to do the job. Um, It's a standard practice. It's becoming a bit more controversial because essentially it's free labor. And it's like the time it takes to do these tests can be, you know, 40 plus hours of work if you're doing a good one. So it, it is industry standard. I think I wish we could find a better way to, to do this. But you know I mean the, one of the reasons we do it is because it's easy to fake a portfolio. It's easy to steal art and put somebody else's art in your portfolio. So a skills mm-hmm. test really makes sure that this person is the per- is like can do the thing they say that they can do. So anyway, for, for a ship, it's, it's literally just design, model and texture a starship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get certain parameters and then, you, you know, um, and put it in a, in a rendering engine. And, and so that's that's what I had to do for my test. And I was not an accomplished 3D modeler. So I sort of had to learn. I binged a bunch of 3D Studio Max tutorials and, and kind of suffered through it. And what I turned in was okay. But uh, I'm lucky that the team saw potential in me. Um, and they also had worked with me. And they knew that I was reliable and passionate and I was committing to putting out quality work so that if you know if there was a quality gap because I was so new at doing ships um, they knew that I would do what it took to to close that gap as quickly as possible so um, I, I definitely owe a lot to to their faith in me to let me make that change.
0: Well, that's awesome. Sounds like the ship art test was nothing like the Kobayashi Maru for you. So (laughs) I'm, I'm glad you passed because all of the great ship designs that you've produced since then, you know, have just blown my mind. And this gets the main point of the interview, which is that you literally design ships for a living. And I can barely imagine like what that (laughs) means, how cool it must be to be you. When I was little, of course, I was one of those kids, you know, who would doodle Star Trek ships in in the margins of my notes at school. Mm -hmm. But I suspect that your job is a little bit more involved than, you know, just doodling. So what does a day in the office look like for a professional starship designer?
1: When you're making the ships, if you're, you know, as a ship artist before I became ship lead, essentially you're you're it's a task that can take 100 120 hours, right? So it's it's something you're kind of chipping away at every day and you're you're working uh, in in 3D, So you're creating a 3D model of the starship and you know, we have we have fancy programs that make this easy for artists to work with, but essentially all 3D model is, is a text file with a bunch of instructions that, you know, put a vertex here, connect it with an edge here, are, you know, here are the degrees of, it, of its normal faces, right? It's actually a lot of math, but then the, the software that you use, and we use 3D Studio Max and Starships takes all that and, you know, presents it as a pretty 3D model with all the textures and the rendering and the lighting and everything. So you know there are many stages that process. So one day you might be just modeling, and so modeling is essentially you start with uh, a a cube, right, and then you start like cutting up the cube and adding, extruding faces from it, or you you take a a a sphere and you squash it down, and that's your saucer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then you cut in the windows, and you cut in, you know, add the faces strips and all that stuff. And uh, 3D models are, are at their most basic elements, uh, well, they're vertices, edges, but those make up triangles, right? So it's mm. the, the, we kind of shorthand for how much detail is in the model and how resource intensive for a computer a model is. We say, oh, this is 30,000 triangles or 20,000 triangles because that's really what the model, what it boils down to. And that's what the video card is uh-huh. rendering um, is triangles and vertices. So anyway, uh, so you'll be doing that, or you might be taking your, the geometry that you made, um, which is another, geometry is just another word for the, the mesh, the model, lots of different words for the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a scientist, I'm sure you <laughs> can yeah, sympathize. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so the, the model is essentially, if you think of it like a physical, in the physical world, right, you would build a, a model airplane, but then you would have to paint it. Right, so that the next step is painting it, which we we call texturing, or UVing. UVing is so you have your three coordinate, your coordinates in 3D space. So vertex, you know, vertex will have an x value, a y value, and a z value, right? Then we'll also have UV coordinates, a u value and a v value, and these are coordinates on a 2D plane, which is how we ascribe locations on a texture, a sheet of a texture how we apply that to a model and that's essentially painting the model, right? How interesting. So if you think of a, a globe, right? When you unwrap a globe and then you have to take a, something that was wrapped around a 3D image and you have to turn that into 2D and that's why you get, the distortions right so the you know the infamous mercator projection mm-hmm. where the closer you get to the poles the more distorted it is yeah um, that's because they're they're trying to solve a hard math problem of taking something that's spherical and turning it flat mm-hmm. so that's essentially what we're doing when we uv a model or texture model is we're we're taking something that's 3d and then flattening it out on Un- we call it unwrapping because that's also you know if you think about it, unwrapping a present right the wrapping paper is wrapped around a 3d object and Mm -hmm. imagine it's like a weird shape it's not just a box but it's you know a thermos or something Mm -hmm. um and so you're unwrapping it and flattening out the paper and to make that work sometimes you have to add weird cuts and make the paper weird shape and tape it together (laughs) and Ah. so that's essentially the the texturing stage of it is taking the 3d model and flattening it out and then moving it moving different what we call UV islands, but they're just um, essentially pieces of that wrapping paper, moving it to the right spot on our texture sheet to have the right details. And then there's a whole other data setup that you get into. So that's, if you're a ship artist, you're doing usually one of those three things, but then you also might be like going to meetings and talking about planning out, like, this is the next ship we're going to make. What kind of powers could it have? You know, if we take a ship um, like the USS Discovery, it's obvious that the power we're going to make is the mycelial jump, right? But like, it's easy to say, okay, we just have to make it do that. But then like, what does it actually mean in gameplay turns? Like, how do you translate that to a power that players can use? And so we'll talk about that. We'll also have concept discussions where we're planning a ship that hasn't been seen on screen, that we're making our own designs. Um, We have a concept artist and his job is to actually start with a blank canvas and then start drawing and start doing rough models and blockouts to do the illustration that will guide us when we get to the point where we have to build that ship. So Star Trek Online has um, we do a lot of Rebuilding what you see on screen, what's what's considered canon, right? What appears in the TV shows, and then we also create our own designs, which are usually riffs on on canon designs, but like we extrapolate that into the Star Trek Online setting, which is ten years after Picard, thirty years, thirty or forty years after Voyager. So we have our own little space of like this is what the Starfleet aesthetic is. Mm-hmm. in Star Trek Online. This is what Star Trek Online ship looks like. And so we have yeah. uh, design sessions of like figuring that out right. So so usually a ship artist is doing like one of those things. They're building a ship or they're finishing a ship or putting the ship in the game or they're talking about what's coming up. So it's cool. It's a lot of different ways to be creative, a lot of different ways to uh, solve problems and some of it's more hands-on and some of it's more collaborative.
0: That's awesome. You absolutely forecasted my next question, which was going to be about the 25th century starship aesthetic. But before we get to that, I wanted to back up and just go back to this UV space, because when you first said that at first, I didn't really understand what that meant, but then you described it as basically two coordinates that describe the texture of the ship.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's essentially, it's just, uh, if you think about the vertex, right, at the yeah. model is made up of at least tens of thousands of vertices. So each vertex has a X, Y, and Z coordinate, and that's the mm-hmm. coordinate in 3D space. But if you forget about those for a second, and you think about a, a graph, right? A graph on graph paper, and then a point on that graph is going to have an X coordinate and a Y coordinate, right? So the UV coordinate is just, it's the same thing because mm-hmm. the, the texture is a 2D. It's essentially a graph on a graph paper. It's an image, um, but it's a another way to d- define those values because we can't use x and y because those are already being used in the 3d space of the actual model. So instead of calling it x and y for the the 2d value, we just call it u and v and it's just sort of a data collision thing. So it's essentially it's just a piece of data about when you apply a texture to this model, here's where this vertex lives on that texture. So if you know if if, if a texture is 64 pixels by 64 pixels, or um, which is really small. Oh, but.
0: oh, I see. Okay, the graph paper is mm-hmm. the wrapping paper. Right. This UV graph paper is the wrapping paper, and so the U and V coordinate for any given node tells you where on that two-dimensional wrapping paper that place in 3D space corresponds to exactly oh my good okay so (laughs) uh my mind is being blown right now (laughs) okay this is so cool so basically every single vertex in a starship actually has five coordinates exactly x y and z coordinate
1: and it might have more um oh because there are you can add um multiple uv channels so you could Uh have a on channel on the uv channel one these are the uv coordinates On in uv channel 2 these are other coordinates and we do this for um the romulan daderidex that we just remastered um last year or maybe it was early this year uh time what is time um <laughs> but the the Dideridex, the the canon model has very distinctive weathering streaks that go along the length of this ship very very broad dark lines that we felt were very distinct to the design and so the only way to do that was actually to give the ship another set of uv coordinates so that in the first set of uv coordinates uses our standard what we call tiling texture which is how we do all the the plating and stuff uh, the whole plating and then the second coordinates was specifically just for the the weathering and it's unwrapped in a different way so yeah i mean like it's fascinating how how complex this has gotten over the years. Um, there's layers and layers of of textures that are all doing different things to make make something feel real, right? It's all about creating an illusion. There's a famous <laughs> piece of art. Um, this is not a pipe, right? And, you know, this is not a starship. It's just <laughs> a bunch of triangles and pixels, but You use all these tools to fool people into feeling like, oh, this is, this is the Enterprise, or this is Voyager, or Defiant.
0: Yeah, well, you fooled me pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) So um, let's get to the 25th century ships now. So Star Trek Online, like you said, takes place 30 years after the return of Voyager slash Nemesis that whole time period and 10 years after Picard or so. So, you know, the Federation of that era has its own cohesive design language. Um, I've got the Eagle Moss Hero Collector Odyssey here. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, listeners can't see this, but you know it's it's this little I don't know how, three and a half inch model or something like this is really high quality. And in my Zoom background, I've got the Pathfinder. Yeah, I your, recognize your the baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so something that you know unifies all of these 25th century starship designs is kind of this very pearly white base, and then these really dark black elements and really bright like almost orangish in their original design Bussard collectors and then like neon blue nacelle gratings Mm -hmm. so what how did that whole design language come about um what was that conversation like and why did you decide on those types of elements
1: it's kind of cool so that was before my time on the ship team that all happened right actually when i was brand new to star trek online i started in I started at Cryptic in 2010, and then I started on Star Trek Online in 2011, right when they were getting uh, ready to design the Enterprise-F. So the Enterprise-F is an Odyssey class in Star Trek Online. It's something that is original to Star Trek Online. I would love for it to appear <laughs> in the show someday, <laughs> but yeah. you know, who knows? So how the Enterprise-F actually got started, though, was it's actually sort of tied into the fate of the USS Titan, because there was a contest to create... The USS Titan for Simon Schuster or Pocketbooks or whatever. And CBS was pretty happy with how that went. And they were happy with the result that they got for the Titan. And so they decided to go ahead and oh, well, for Star Trek Online, you guys want a 25th century enterprise, right? And this was way before Picard was a glimmer in, you know, Akiva Goldsman's eye. Like it was (laughs) uh, this was this was essentially like For all intents and purposes, I think the expectation was that the prime timeline was done because Star Trek Online uh, was being developed in the run up to the 2009 Star Trek film. Right. And there was a bit of back and forth with Paramount and CBS about, you know, how the game is going to uh, relate to the movies and stuff. And I this is um, this is deep lore. And I don't know if this has ever been said publicly um so i'm going to give you a bit of an exclusive that's a bit of a hearsay and it's it's over like what are we at 12 years old so hopefully i won't get in trouble for saying this but (laughs) but originally apparently the plan for the hobus supernova was that it was going to obliterate the prime universe entirely like the the prime universe was just going to go away and then the only star trek that was going to exist going forward was the kelvin timeline and um and then when the Star Trek Online team, who was, you know, was slavishly working to get this game out the door, heard about that, they're like, "Ah, oh, wait a minute! <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that. We need a universe to put our game in." Yeah. <laughs> and they were, we weren't gonna. It wasn't going to be a Kelvin game, right? They had their rights to. They wanted to continue the Prime universe into the 25th century, and and the 25th century seemed like a very safe place to be because you know there was going to be the reboot and i think the expectation at the time was that every new star trek would be in the kelvin universe that there would be no no more prime timeline stuff so So, are you telling uh, me
0: that star trek online saved the prime universe
1: that's how it was explained to me oh my goodness
0: (laughs) that's amazing
1: (laughs) so um i hope nobody i mean i don't know who would contradict me jj abrams i don't i don't think he cares that much (laughs) um but that's that's what i remember the uh the lead writer of sto at the time christine thompson who's amazing and she's gone on to work at Bungie, and i think she's working at um i don't know the name of the studio but they're working in the next perfect dark game which is super cool but yeah i remember she had that conversation with me and told me about that and i kind of i was <laughs> aghast <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the idea the idea that uh, the prime timeline almost uh, was almost incinerated so uh yeah so star trek online saved the prime timeline and there would be no discovery picard lower decks <laughs> Without us. There you go. That's amazing. Spread it far okay. and wide. We'll take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I said all that to say that CBS was like fairly confident that no show would want to do an Enterprise-F. So they're willing to give that to us as like, okay, there's not gonna be another show in the <laughs> in in the prime timeline. There's not gonna be another Enterprise after the E. We'll just let the Star Trek Online folks take this. And so that kind of became our flagship uh, because of our setting of the 25th century. And so we had a contest that where fans could submit designs of the Enterprise-F. And the winner was Adam, uh, Adam Eiley. He won, the, won that contest and he had a really cool dual neck design that was, um, it w- had, it struck an important balance of being like familiar yet unique. There were a lot of designs that were really familiar and a lot of designs that were really unique, mm-hmm. but when you're designing the next enterprise, you have to hit both of those things, right? Yeah. And if you go too far one way or the other people react negatively and they still initially react kind of ne- negatively to the odyssey. Um, really?
0: I love this design. It, it's gorgeous to me.
1: Yeah. And well, it's, it's grown a lot. I mean, it, like, I think like every enterprise, I think every Star Trek ship has this happen where people react. It's, you know, it's new, it's different and people don't like it, but then you see it and you get to know it and you, uh, it, it grows on you.
0: I probably shouldn't say this, but out of all the enterprise designs, Uh probably only the constitution refit in my mind is cooler than the Odyssey Enterprise F that just, just for me, that's my personal opinion. People are going (laughs) to, you know, come after me on Twitter. I know, (laughs) I know, but, uh, but for me, that's where this ship ranks. It is absolutely gorgeous.
1: I love it. So there are two Adams in the story. There's Adam Eiley who did the fan who designed it. Um, And then Adam Williams, who was the Star Trek Online ship artist who actually, it was his job to bring it into the game and to adapt Adam Eiley's design to an actual ship that we can use in the game. Because Adam uh, Eiley just gave us a sketch, a pen sketch, which is great. It's a beautiful sketch, but it it gave us a lot of freedom to interpret it and to build it uh, in a way that worked for Star Trek Online. And, And this was a turning point for Star Trek Online's visual style for ships, because up until this point, the new ships for STO had been very chunky and blocky. Um, one of our very early art directors had this thing that he said that was like, do you want it to be cool or do you want it to be like Star Trek, right? He is a very, <laughs> we, we kind of suffered from, from a lack of vision <laughs> mm-hmm. early on. And thankfully, by the time we got to the Enterprise F in 2011, the art director at that point, uh, Jeremy Mattson, he was much more interested in following the IP and leaning into Star Trek because the game had been live for a year and we realized that, oh, people want their Star Trek game to look like Star Trek. I think also you're seeing that with these new Star Trek shows, a lot of the positive reaction to the, you know, Picard and strange new worlds comes from that. Like it says Star Trek on the Tim. We want to feel like we're watching something that we're familiar with. Right. We want these cues and it doesn't have to be like totally a rehash, but, but there should be things that point back to the heritage of the franchise. But anyway, Mm -hmm. So we went into the uh, designing the Enterprise F, and we went from being very blocky and just like just adding a lot of kind of pointless surface details to Adam Williams, the ship artist on the ship. He he was like, we're gonna go away from all that. And we're gonna go super smooth, and we're gonna treat this as an evolution evolution from the Sovereign, right? And so one of the things about the Sovereign, and we're finally getting to the point. <laughs> <laughs> is that it has a very high contrast color scheme, right? So there's the arrow with a dark gray plating, and then the rest of the ship is this really nice kind of light beige or, or white color. And so Williams kind of took that as the starting point because we're we're evolving from that, right? And then he was like, Well, let's push it. And so he looked at, you know, a lot of um there's a lot of like utopian futurist sci-fi art that really plays with that black and white color scheme. Obviously the space shuttle NASA like has, you know, there's the rockets yeah. use that color scheme. So it was, it was grounded in a lot of that stuff. We're, we're pulling in a lot of triggers of making people think about space and the future futurism. And we felt that that, that high contrast color scheme really just checked all those boxes.
0: That's so cool. Yeah, no problem with taking a winding road towards the answer there because <laughs> you went to some really cool places. I, I really loved all those stories. I also wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about the story behind the Pathfinder because I know you consider that kind of your baby and mm-hmm. it's uh it's a really beautiful ship as well. In terms of you know aesthetics, you know, maybe I'd hand it to the Odyssey, but when it comes to flying a ship in-game, I actually find Cruisers super boring to play. I love playing science vessels, and the Pathfinder is one of my faves for actually flying around. So uh, yeah, tell us about how you designed this one. I know it took a little bit of inspiration from an old design for the Intrepid class, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So the Pathfinder was the first Federation starship that I actually got to design and work on, and that was when we were. Uh, we were making the transition to tier six ships, right? So up until that point, Star Trek Online had, had tiers of starships from one to five. We were adding a new tier six, and so we needed tier six versions of pretty much all of our favorite ships. So the Galaxy Defiant and, and the Intrepid were kind of the big three. And so the Intrepid is, you know, a science vessel. And with Voyager, like the, the brief is essentially: okay, what's well, a super futuristic Voyager? And we we already had. The Bellerophon in the game, which was another thing that Adam Williams worked on, which is a really cool modernization of the Intrepid. He added like a little slipstream drive to the deflector, inspired by the Dauntless, and he sleeked it out. He kind of added some like scoops, like uh, like you might see like I think I remember them talking about like being inspired by like a Pontiac or something, <laughs> um, you know? And so and he uh, lengthened the warp nacelles so that the um, Bellerophon hat was a bit more balanced than the, the canon Intrepid, which by the way, uh, designed by Rick Sternbach, a genius, Rick Sternbach. I wanted to bring him up, make sure he got the uh, name checked in this, podcast because he is a a very talented well-known space artist so not only has he designed the intrepid and prometheus or well i'll say voyager in case people don't know Mm -hmm. that the intrepid is the voyager's class designation but um rick sternbach does a lot of you know scientifically motivated space art and he's Mm -hmm. actually i think one of the reasons that star trek has been so grounded in science throughout the decades it's been his his work on like the tech manual he co-wrote the tech manual with Mike Cuda. you know he's written a lot of other tech manuals and stuff that the authors use when they're writing scripts so uh, Rick Sternbrock designed the Voyager and one of the early versions of Voyager had kind of these down inspired by the runabout I think the runabout nacelle pylons they're tilted down and then it had like more of an arrowhead saucer. And so I took a look at that stuff and I took a look at the Bellerophon. I was like, okay, how do we, how we take this futuristic version of the Voyager that we already have and then like push it even further. And also I thought it would be cool to pay tribute to the work that Rick had done on the original Voyager concepts. One of the early concepts of Voyager had this big sail and it was like a shield generator Mm -hmm. sail that was, really kind of wild and we've never seen anything like it yeah. um so i tried to try to get that in into the pathfinder but the <laughs> nobody else liked it <laughs> it was just it was too too odd too out there yeah it um, makes it
0: kind of look like a fish or a shark or
1: something yes like that. exactly yeah it looked it looked like a shark or like a big you know one of those sailboats that have a giant keel um, uh, yeah. that's supposed to help them maneuver but yeah, so so the Pathfinder is even more stretched out than the Bellerophon, and the cells are a little longer. It, I added um, fins to make it feel kind of like a. It's almost like a cat's. Like when a cat is angry or getting ready to attack, and the ears flatten back. Mm. Uh, that's kind of I think the unconscious inspiration for the fins on the on the Pathfinder saucer. Huh. Um, And I explain those as like quantum slipstream maneuvering vanes or something. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just, uh, it's another way to make it feel sleek. You know, I, I wanted these 25th century ships to look fast, even when they're standing still. And so the Pathfinder has a lot of little tricks like that to do that.
0: they definitely they definitely do that and um cool that your cats also uh inspired a little bit of starship design right (laughs) (laughs) yeah and you talking about rick sternbach like that and him writing the technical manuals with mike akuda and others you know that brings up again how you're very good at forecasting my questions um (laughs) (laughs) because my next question is how the technical stuff melds with the art in star trek because one of the things that really draws me to star trek is how the ships are supposed to work within the laws of physics and engineering in the star trek universe you know we had those technical manuals from the 90s tv shows that really showed how much those designers cared about the technical aspects of the ships you know do you have enough antimatter pods where are the rcs thrusters right this is different from you know, how a lot of other sci-fi probably goes about designing their ships. I presume that they just care about making things look cool. (laughs) But when NASA designs a rover, they don't care if it looks cool or not. They just design it to function. I feel like Star Trek is probably somewhere in between. So I was wondering if you could speak to this meld of science and art.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. That's one of the things I like about Star Trek. It is a balance for Star Trek. You know, I think you've got maybe on one extreme, the Expanse, which is not like, you know, 100% accurate but it's way more accurate than star trek is and then on the other end is star wars right which is just purely aesthetic and star trek is somewhere in the middle and i like i like it in the middle because i like you know there is a a lot of grace in star trek ships especially like the enterprise d even the original enterprise with the with the neck and the uh the pylons that the height that she has it evokes like a tall ship right a sailing ship and the way they move is very graceful and they have a lot of character and that character comes from the aesthetic but what's cool about what Sternbach Okuda and all the all the people who lean into this is that they will they will take that aesthetic and then kind of extract or retroactively apply reasons to it to explain it right like the the Enterprise D it's very very graceful curvy lines right and you don't, why would you build a spaceship like that? There's no atmosphere in space. It doesn't need to be aerodynamic, but it is aerodynamic. And so they, they're like, well, uh, subspace. <laughs> and then they create you know this whole other dimension and explain warp drive and explain that while space doesn't have aerodynamics, there is something about this other dimension of traveling fast in life where these dynamics do matter and the, yeah. the, the, the shape of the ship do matter. And then, then they create structural integrity fields to explain why... These ships don't just fly apart when they're put under all these stresses that really shouldn't uh, they shouldn't be able to endure. You know, I think that really is in some ways we just got lucky as fans that those (laughs) kinds of people ended up working on Star Trek. I think it stems from the idea that Star Trek has always been our future. It's not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? It is, if we got our crap together in 400 years, like look at everything we could have and look at everything we could accomplish. And because of that attitude, it does ground it in the real world in a way that other science fiction or space fantasy properties don't. And uh, and I think it attracted people who liked it because of that, you know, attracted people like Mike Bakuda, who's a huge NASA historian right and he's even done nowadays he works on for all mankind he even does mission mission passages for nasa and so he he liked that about star trek as an extrapolation of our space exploration from today and so he builds a lot of that history and everything that he does and then rick sternbach will take something weird like andy probert's design for the enterprise d and say okay well how do we how do we explain all this? <laughs> and they'll, they'll they'll come up with some, some great explanations for, for how it all works. And I think that's fun. And I sort of try to do that to some extent. I'm I, you know, I'm not a I'm not a scientist or any kind of real engineer, but I at least spent enough time on the toilet reading the TNG Tech Manual as a kid that I <laughs> I have a enough of an understanding of like Star Trek science that I can kind of make it work for the STO ships that I work on. Or at least I can create convincing techno babble on the spot. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right. All right. I'm gonna put that techno babble to the test. <laughs> no, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Well, I've actually I put together a list of a couple of burning ship questions that mm-hmm. I've always wanted to ask a ship designer. Be warned. Some of these are a little bit pedantic, but I mm-hmm. just need to know the answer. Mm-hmm. So we all know that starfleet vessels have deflector dishes right to move micrometeoroids away so that they don't slam into them at high speeds is there an explanation for how the miranda class survives
1: space travel without (laughs) an obvious deflector dish i think there are a lot of different ways you can answer that question in my mind i think it has one we just it just doesn't look like deflector dishes on other starfleet ships i think that there's a little um on the top of the roll bar Mm-hmm. There's a very small circular feature there that I think could potentially be a deflector dish. There's also the idea that maybe it's just embedded in the saucer, like the Enterprise, the NX-01 deflector dish was, mm-hmm. but they just figure out a way to make it kind of invisible to whatever radiation the deflector dish is putting out. That it's transparent to the hull, or the mm-hmm. hull is transparent to it, so you don't need to see it physically. The other option is that maybe the miranda uses its deflector shields instead of having a dedicated deflector dish it will use like its tactical defense systems uh which would also presumably prevent an asteroid from hitting the ship and uh for whatever reason it was easier to do that when they built the ship as opposed to like building in a decade deflector way so i think there are ways you can explain it you know if you try hard or (laughs) i think yeah i mean that's how i would do it one of those explanations is what i would say i think you can pick your poison there
0: (laughs) yeah these are these are good explanations um i limited my list to three questions so that was that was question number one question number Mm -hmm. two is how many torpedo launchers does the akira class actually have
1: oh my god (laughs) (laughs) if we go by intent of the author I think Alex Yeager, who designed the Incura for Star Trek First Contact, I think he says somewhere that it has like 16 torpedo launchers, and that includes the ones that are pointing sideways, right? They're like two on either side of the saucer. And then in the the actual torpedo pod, there are like a bunch pointing forward, and then there are some that are pointing back at an angle, and then there are others that are pointing straight back. So it's like it's like sixteen or something. Uh, if we go by that answer, um, I don't know why you need that many, <laughs> yeah, right? It's a lot. <laughs> if you think about torpedoes, I'm going to go on a bit of a tear here, but like, <laughs> and I think a lot of science fiction fans kind of fall in this trap where it's like always more is better, right? Mm-hmm. But at some point, you know, if you think about a real submarine. You'll never be in a situation where it's useful to have 16 torpedo launchers on your submarine. Like if you need that many, then just build more submarines. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's more useful to have three submarines with or four submarines with four torpedo launchers each than it is to have one submarine with 16, because you're packing all of your offensive firepower into one unit. And if you lose that unit, then all those resources are wasted, right? All those torpedoes are wasted. And also that unit can only be in one place at one time versus if you have three, four submarines, then they can be in four places. Now that said, uh, submarines don't have energy shields. So maybe there is a tactical advantage to just hammering something over and over again really fast to bring down a ship's shields if, if your adversary is super, has super powerful shields. I think if I were going to kind of justify the Akira class to the Federation Appropriations Committee (laughs) for defense, I would say that it's designed to hold its own against a larger squadron of technologically inferior starships. Mm -hmm. So the use case of that would be the Cardassian War which they kind of allude to in Next Generation, right? They signed a peace treaty with the Cardassians. Apparently this war has been going on this whole time and nobody's talked about it until they signed the peace treaty, but that's that's where O'Brien fought, right? Mm -hmm. Apparently it was kind of a brutal war, but my interpretation of all of that was that the Cardassians were trying to provoke the Federation and the Federation was gun-shy about actually prosecuting that war at its full capability, because the Federation doesn't actually want to be in war. It doesn't want to treat, you know, like, if if somebody provokes the Federation, I think it takes a lot for them to actually, like, go to war, right, which is why the Dominion War was a big deal. And the Federation certainly didn't feel like the Cardassian Empire at the time was an existential threat. I think it was more analogous to, like, what we did in Grenada or something or you know I don't necessarily I mean Iraq the first desert storm has a lot of baggage but maybe that's a good example uh, all the desert storms have baggage but the first desert storm I guess may be a good example of a limited you know the United States is a superpower it's going to war with a very small country that has breached some sort of international international law and so it's going to send the resources it thinks it needs that can do the job but the United States did not commit every plane, every tank to prosecuting desert storm, right? Again, the first desert storm. I think the the Cardassian war is analogous to that. And I think what happened was because the Federation was defending itself from the Cardassians and the Cardassians I probably man, this is this is such a <laughs> <laughs> I thought a lot about this, like the Akira. I've actually thought a lot about the Akira and yeah. why why it would need to be so heavily armed. I bet you did not. I bet you did not anticipate this going down such no, a route. No, but I hall. love it because you're bringing in
0: all this lore <laughs> to justify this insane number of torpedo launchers. Right. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. That the designer
1: had. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think the you know if you if you think about the ships at the time, you've got like um maybe you've got some New Orleans, you've got Ambassador classes, you've got Excelsior classes that can handle the Cardassian warships, but the Cardassians are committing way more to this fight than the Federation is. And so I think there was probably a segment of the Admiralty in Starfleet that's like, if we get in this situation again, I want our Starfleet ships to be able to take on four Cardassian cruisers at once and not worry about it, right? Because we're fighting a foe that is way more committed than we are and and sending a lot more ships than we are, even though one for one, our ships are better, but we're still in a situation where we're outnumbered and we need to be prepared for that. So that's mm. how that's how it would justify the Akira having 16 torpedo launchers. This is like, oh, it's ambushed by a squadron of, of Galar class cruisers, no big deal. Just fire torpedoes at all of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right,
0: great explanation. Uh, really love it. Last <laughs> rapid fire question that I really have wanted to ask a Starship expert for a really long time. The detached warpness cells that were introduced in Star Trek Discovery season three. Mm-hmm. For me, the justification that goes in my head is this is just the next evolution of the variable geometry warpness cells on the Intrepid and the Pathfinder, etc. Mm-hmm. Is that how you justify it, or is there a better justification for this?
1: Uh, I could see that. I mean, I, you know, there is, there is a point to be made of like, if you don't need to add mass to your spaceship, then don't add mass. Because a ship with less mass is easier to maneuver, it's easier to change course. I think that's something that people, you know, when they think about giant starships, they can't turn on a dime. And I think any Star Trek fan, any science fiction fan owes it to themselves to play Kerbal Space Program and just, <laughs> like, at least get to the point where you can land on the moon. Because I, I still don't really understand orbital mechanics, but I do understand... Newtonian motion in a way that I did not before. <laughs> yeah, and F so how Star Trek? What'd you say?
0: F equals ma. Force equals mass right. times acceleration. So yeah, mass really matters. Right, exactly.
1: Yeah. And and Star Trek does not really care about Newtonian physics. I don't think there's some lip service and dialogue, but how how Star Trek depicts ships moving in space is very very different from how they do and presumably that's just because impulse is magic you know and it, as much as warp drive is magic i think the impulse drive is also magic in a different way it's a non-reactionary mm. way of moving the starship right because they can back up without turning the ship around yeah because you know if, it, if impulse drive was just a rocket then they would have to turn the ship around because the force would be coming out of the back of the ship
0: right the impulse engines always point back right oh yeah
1: And I think in the tech manual, there is some mention of it actually invoking some smaller subspace field or something. So, I don't know. It's worth (laughs) reading again. Um, Also, because I have to bring, every time we talk about the tech manual, the TNG tech manual, I have to bring up the holodeck. Have you read the section on the holodeck in the tech manual? probably a long time ago
0: but refresh my memory
1: yeah yeah so what's great about it is you kind of read it and you're like this is this is terrifying it is not (laughs) what you think so the original idea for holographic characters that is obviously contradicted in canon by now but the original idea that made it into the tech manual which was written for the writers of tng originally right and then they're like oh hey like fans like this we could actually clean this up and and sell this but uh, is that most things in the holodeck are actually replicated right so like a chair a food that you eat is actually replicate it's a real physical object mm-hmm. including the characters which are essentially replicated puppets and the holodeck uses little tractor beams to make their mouth move and their eyes move oh and like God. maybe there's like an armature inside that kind of you know like a yeah a robot. And then, and then the sound is, you know, played over the speakers and stuff. So like when you're interacting with, with a holodeck character the original idea is actually just a meat puppet being controlled literally a meat puppet being controlled by the ship's computer oh my god this is so weird Uh, and unsettling and i'm glad they just sort of went with it's it's holograms (laughs) yeah yeah
0: no I, i i definitely in my in my head canon and this may have been inspired by something that i read in the tech manuals but um i always see Transporters, replicators, and holodeck technology as essentially the same technology. Like right, the same yeah. basic fundamentals would need to be achieved in order to get all three of those.
1: And that's that's a fun thing about thinking about this technology is that people think about these inventions, but none of it's in a vacuum, right? You need it's all it's like evolution where it's like this needs to happen first before you can get this thing to happen, before this can happen, right? Like mm-hmm. we couldn't before we get to The iPhone, we need transistors or whatever, right? Like, yeah,
0: totally. No, I think uh, there there are a lot of serious scientists these days who are thinking about describing. Technological evolution in the same kinds of paradigms and equations that describe biological evolution. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're technological objects. Even computer code seems to speciate in in a way that resembles the way that uh, our biological trees of life do. Um, right. So it's really interesting. They they do respond to essentially natural selection. Do we use right. this or do we not? And right. if we do. Then it will continue to go on and evolve into the next thing. So,
1: fractals all the way down. <laughs> uh, yeah,
0: pretty much. Um, so for this last segment of this interview, I want to transition to the wonderful news having to do with Star Trek Picard and Star Trek Online. So for reference, one of the scenes that really irked me from the first season of Picard was the final showdown between the Romulan fleet and the Federation fleet in the last episode of that season, where basically it was a bunch of copy and pasted Romulan ships and a bunch of copy and pasted Federation ships. I mean, nothing against the inquiry class, but it was just like, I was Mm. hoping for a little more ship diversity as a fan of Federation starships. Yeah. Now we fast forward to season two, episode one, which aired, I guess, uh, about a week ago from the recording of this podcast. And we get to see another federation fleet but this time it's composed of a whole bunch of different ships including some of your designs for star trek online so Mm -hmm. thomas please tell us how did this
1: happen it's incredible it's an incredible opportunity i'm so proud of of my team and um you know, I'm so grateful to Dave Blass, uh, who is the production designer on Star Trek Picard. So for people who aren't familiar with that term, the production designer is essentially the person in charge with the look of the show, right? He's the the overall look of everything on the show. He kind of sets that and makes decisions about this is the direction we're going to go. And he he controls the art department of the show, and they're the ones who... Essentially, the video game analog is concept artists, but um, essentially they're the ones who create all the um, the blueprints that everybody else takes to make. Right. So the art department will design a spaceship, or the art department will design a set or a prop, and then that goes to the prop department, or that goes to the set department, or the VFX house. And all these things are actually pretty siloed in terms of like these people are responsible for these things. But the moral of the story is Dave is responsible for the look of Star Trek Picard season two and season three and he knew in the script for season two he knew there was going to be another federation fleet that was going to show up and and he was very aware uh, of all the the, you know if you want to call it backlash or feedback or whatever um, at the end of the first season of having that starfleet task force show up and it's all one ship, you know, and to be fair to them, they did make some variations in the cells and things, but, but ultimately I think it was a, it was a budget and a time issue where essentially they just had the time to make that one ship and couldn't really go into it. And I, and I think also that sort of caught some people by surprise, because I think you have people who really care about this stuff. And then you have people who are more invested in the characters and the plot, you know, but there is a big section of Star Trek fans that really do care about the starships, and we're kind of, you know, waiting the whole season of Star Trek Card. Like, what is Starfleet going to look like in the 25th century? Right? We yeah. saw, uh, we saw Starfleet headquarters. We saw that quantum archive. We saw some shuttles that were reused from Discovery. There was the short trek that bridged the gap, that had the mm-hmm. attack on Utopia of Venetia, that also used ships from Discovery. <laughs> and so a lot of people were just chomping at the bit, what does a Starfleet ship look like? We hadn't seen it. And so then to get the Inquiry, uh, which on its own is a cool ship uh, designed by John Eves, but that was it, felt like kind of the, they're letting air out of the tires a little bit. That was a bit of a letdown. So Dave really wanted to, and Dave is a huge Star Trek fan, and Dave is also the type of person that, is interested in ships. He loves starships. He dreamed of designing his own ship for Star Trek one day, and he actually got to do that with the Stargazer that that appeared in this episode. But he went around and he started thinking about, okay, well, I have this fleet. I don't have money to make my own fleet of starships, but where else could we get ships Mm. to appear, right? And so he thought of Eagle Moss. They have a, a huge catalog of Star Trek ships. And then he, by chance, saw... A tweet that I had made actually about the Eagle Moss STO collection, and I think I think uh, there also had been because Star Trek Online takes place close to Picard. I think some people at CBS had sort of floated the idea at one point or another. Somehow he heard about STO and he heard that you know, and then he saw like he looked us up and he saw the ships we that we had been making, and he was and he liked them, and that's really what it boils down to, right? In all of this you just have to have somebody who likes what you're doing and wants to work with you. And that's, we just had that in Dave. He, he reached out to me and, and I, you know, I think like, I thought I was being punked at first because he, he DM me <laughs> and he's like, uh, I'm working on Picard season two. Uh, your ships are pretty cool. I'd love to talk more about them. And then we started to have a, a conversation about it and eventually it, it took two years. I mean, like that was um, June or July, 2020. And oh, then wow. we're in March, 2022, right? Mm-hmm. So almost two years between that initial conversation and, and now. And so when he when he told me that he wanted to use STO ships, I, I basically got a big packet together of like, here are the, the ships I think you could use. And he's like, okay, these are the ones we want. And mm-hmm. so then I packaged up the models and sent it off to the effects guys that he was working with. Um, and there was even some question Originally, there was some uh, reticence on their part, because I think they their consideration what video game models were, I think was maybe a little lower detail than what we were doing in Stowe. But ultimately, they saw the models, they liked the models, and they are willing to use them. And uh, so uh, a lot of credit to Brian uh, Trotsky. I think that's how you say his name. He's a VFX coordinator, I believe, on Picard. But he did a lot of that work of taking my models and putting them into their pipeline. And I I don't know, I, I he's a busy guy and he's working on Picard season three right now. I hope he goes into exactly what they did to our models because I don't know. Um, mm. I don't know how they were changed. I'm pretty sure they started with our model, but I don't know if they added more detail or if they just changed the materials to fit their pipeline. I, I just don't know what the situation was there. But in, in any case, like it looks great. It's I'm so proud to see them yeah. on the screen to have SEO some STO ships be canonized like this is like a huge, you know, it's very validating for us as we kind of carried the Star Trek torch for between the Kelvin movies and Discovery, right? We -hmm. were the only real multimedia way you could experience Star Trek. And so to have this happen is a great kind of button on that story, I think.
0: And I can't wait to see more ships from Star Trek Online enter the you know tv streaming series canon i know you probably can't tell me if that will happen but you know (laughs) again love to see the odyssey love to see the pathfinder Mm -hmm. you know i'll be keeping a keen eye out for more of those ship designs uh i want to end this with just one final question for you thomas People who don't play Star Trek Online may not know, but you have a character in Stowe, Captain (laughs) Maroney of the USS Uh Pathfinder. Mm -hmm. We just saw your ship designs make the leap from Star Trek Online to the streaming series. So my question to end this is, what if you were next? What if you (laughs) got to be Captain Maroney in a Star Trek series? Which of those series currently, I mean, there's like five or six in production now. Which one would you want to be in?
1: Well, I think timeline-wise, it would be fun to be like Ensign, I guess. So the character in Star Trek Online is a captain. Uh, Picard is eight years before Star Trek Online. So he would be like a lieutenant or something, uh, or lieutenant commander maybe. So seeing a lieutenant commander Maroney in the, uh, you know, showing up in Picard would be pretty cool. Yeah, Uh, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't turn my nose up at that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, fingers crossed for that as well. Um, although again, I guess you would know if you were that because they just wrapped filming season three. Yeah. but if you were that's you- not gonna. Have that. okay.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, that's thing I've had. I did get to I did Dave did and, uh, and Dave has been really so supportive of us. Go find him on Twitter. I recommend your listeners go find him on Twitter because he's been posting so many cool behind the scenes images of the uniforms, of the sets, of the ships. Uh, He's just a font of like cool background behind the scenes info for Picard, but he did invite me down to get to check out the stargazer bridge. So I actually, I got to sit in the captain's chair on the stargazer and go walk around the corridors and stuff. Um, I did that about a month ago and that was, that was really wild. Um, So uh, it was, it was definitely a religious, a religious experience. (laughs) So
0: jealous. Yeah, (laughs) that's just great. While you were plugging uh, Dave Blass, why don't you also plug your own socials? Where can people follow you and all of your amazing work online?
1: Yeah, so um, probably the best way to follow me is uh, at Thomas the Cat. So T-H-O-M-A-S-T-H-E-C-A-T. Um, that's my personal Twitter, although I mostly tweet about Star Trek and Star Trek Online there. Um, I do have a an account that's only for Star Trek Online stuff, which is at cryptic underscore TTC. Um, so you can follow that too if you only want to hear about what's going on with with STO but yeah that's where I'm at
0: well thanks again for being on strange new worlds it was super fun to be able to speak to you about uh, ships and I think a lot of ship was shot today
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I certainly feel that way thank you for inviting me on and uh, it was really fun Uh, I hope I hope people enjoyed going through all the I don't know if we're going to call them rabbit holes or wormholes or, <laughs> or
0: whatever. <laughs> I like wormholes, yeah. <laughs> it was so heartwarming to hear Thomas talk about how he stands on the shoulders of giants like Rick Sternbach and Mike Akuta, as well as how he's so grateful to Dave Blass for giving him the opportunity to lift his Star Trek online ship designs to a whole new level. I really resonated with this because I feel the exact same way when it comes to science. Without the hard work of the legends who came before me, it would not be possible for me to pursue the questions that I do. And if it weren't for my mentors, who have supported me, who noticed something in me even when I couldn't see it myself, and who reached for me and plucked me out of the crowd, I would certainly not be a scientist today. Thomas said of Dave Blass, you just have to have someone who likes what you're making and wants to work with you. And that's how I think of every scientific advisor who's ever given me a chance. And I am forever indebted to them. So my biggest takeaway from an interview that was flush with takeaways is this. Whether you're an artist, or a scientist, or anything else in life. Our careers depend on each other, on serendipitous events, on our networks and connections, just as much as they depend on our hard work. If you're early in your career, never be shy about sharing your work proudly with senior folks, because sometimes all it takes is an email or a knock on someone's door to change your life. And if you're in a position to mentor others, keep an eye out for bright people with sparkling potential to take under your wing. You never know what a simple DM could mean for someone's trajectory. Special thanks this week to the Star Trek Online community manager Mike Fadum for coordinating this interview with Thomas Moroni and for giving me permission to use the epic Star Trek Online theme music for the intro and outro. And thanks to Dr. James T. King, who gifted the Eagle Moss model of the Odyssey-class starship to me. And finally, thank you for listening to Strange New Worlds. Take care, stay curious, and I'll see you out there.
1: was well, good to, a, it was yeah. good to see you again Michael are you going to yeah. mission Chicago or I am yeah I'll be awesome. there are yeah you? I'll be there too I think we're gonna do a couple of panels and stuff so
0: oh fantastic uh, yeah I'm giving my first science of Star Trek talk at a Star Trek convention there at Mission Chicago so awesome. if you have time if you're not doing a panel yourself at the same time I'd love to see you there
1: and yeah yeah I'll, I'll yeah. definitely I will definitely be there that sounds great